Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SAM podcast. I'm co-host Brandon Paradoski here with Cassie Schrader. And we have the amazing opportunity of speaking with Dr. Laura Braden today. She has a PhD in molecular biology. Um, she went through several postdoctoral fellowships, held an adjunct professorship at the University of PEI, and also served as a senior scientist at a private bio firm. So without further ado, uh, thanks, Dr. Braden, for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. When I saw the invitation by um, Sam, I was extremely excited um, because number one, you guys are the best and the brightest of Canada. Um, and number two, it's just, it's so nice to, to reach um, and connect with really discerning young adults. And it makes me feel like our country's in good hands. So thank you for the invitation. <laughs> Yeah, so we wanted to have you on to speak about a couple things. Um, you recently spoke at the National Citizens Inquiry. Um, so maybe tell us a bit about that, um, what that is, and why you decided to um, speak there. Right, so it's actually happening as we speak, which is, uh, I guess this isn't live, so I'll, I'll just refer all your listeners to go back because the testimony has been uh, to this point, phenomenal, and I expect it will continue to gain momentum as it goes across the country. The National Citizens Inquiry is a citizen-led, citizen-funded initiative that asks that is that is basically giving Canadians who have largely been censored, silenced, gaslit for the last three years, gives them an opportunity to tell their story, and and ask our institutions uh, to listen to these to these testimonies and ask them what we could do better next time because there's been a lot of harm. People have you know, you talk about people losing their jobs because they wouldn't capitulate to draconian um, injection mandates, um, students who are forced to, you know, stop their degrees a month early before they, after four years of working their literal tail off um, <laughs> to get their degrees. Um, we look at single parents who were forced to take the injection because they needed to feed their children. Um, and, you know, the harms are, and then, and then just the catastrophic harms of the draconian mandates that we've seen um, not only in Canada, but worldwide, but speaking to Canadian stories, the lockdowns, the mask mandates, the social distancing, all of these mandates that we still to this day do not have an answer or justification for the evidence to support them. Canadians have every right to tell their stories. And the National Citizens Inquiry is an amazing opportunity for that. And when I really want to comment on the citizen-led piece of this, this is 100% grassroots funding, uh, crowdfunding, individuals giving what they can no donation is too small um you know we're in a position right now in canada where people are hurting the inflation rate is an insane grocery bills are through the roof any donation is appreciated no donation is too small because this is what's going to perpetuate the movement across canada it started in truro um, and that's where i spoke as, as an expert witness it's ongoing right now in toronto today's the last day in toronto the next stop is Winnipeg and it goes west, ends up in Vancouver Island, and then it turns around, comes back to Quebec City to final, its final testimony is in, is in Ottawa at the end of May. Um, and really it's been, it's been overwhelming to, to be quite honest, to hear these stories because you hear them and you see them in social media, you know, and then they're gone, but you see them. Um, but to hear them from the lips of the people who are harmed, it's, it's heavy stuff for sure. 
Totally. Um, so where do you hope to see, like, what do you think the NCI is going to accomplish or what's your hope for? What's the goal of that movement before we dig into your data a little bit and what you kind of spoke about? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that's like the number one question I think that we get hey, is, is, okay, great. There's an inquiry because Canadians are so fed up with this, right? Like we're going to tell our story and it's so hard for me to express my story and I'm going to cry and it's going to, I'm vulnerable and all these people are going and doing this, but what does it accomplish? Well, number one, it's gaining critical mass. So there's people who are already awake to the harms and who know it firsthand. There's people who don't know these harms, but they're questioning what's going on in the mandates and they didn't want to do anything. And they're like, what is happening? And then there's people who are, are um, unable to see the harms and don't believe their fellow Canadians. It is of my opinion that this inquiry will reach all three of those groups. Um, and as we go, it's building momentum. The signatures on the petition, please get everybody to sign because it's not like this petition is going to be given to the government with this number of signatures and that gets us anywhere. This petition shows support. This petition gives the, uh, the, the evidence that there's this many Canadians who follow it, believe it. We have questions whether or not you, you agree with the vaccine mandates. Maybe you have questions about why masks were indiscriminately uh, imposed on people. You have a question about anything. You have a question about how the government spend money on certain PPE, and that's a question. It doesn't matter what it is. If you have a question about how the last three years, uh, three plus years now, um, have, been, have been conducted by our federal government, uh, support us. And as we continue to move west, we're hearing these commonalities. So that first one is critical mass, Cassie, that I think is so important. As we continue to hear from our brothers and sisters of this country who have been harmed, who have questions, who have these crazy stories to tell, like it's insane. Um, I'll just, one question, one story I just want to, it keeps on coming back in my head, is a lady here in Nova Scotia who worked with the health department at, to, to, to communicate the numbers of cases in Nova Scotia. She had a number that she was given. And the number that she saw on the news was around 30% higher than what she, like she has evidence of inflation. So there's evidence of deception to the Canadian public that we're starting to see that's starting to be revealed. And this disclosure is insane. So, so that's, I mean, there's so many testimonies. That's just one example. But what else is this gonna do? It's gonna help us heal. You know, we, we talk about the mandates in BC, which are one thing, like that's another ball of wax. And then there's the mandates that you guys are seeing in Manitoba, Ontario, like PEI. I wasn't allowed to leave my province. They closed the bridge to people that didn't have a vax pass. And if you didn't come with a proof of your papers, um, you were on house arrest for 14 days. Like we were on literal Alcatraz here. Um, it's been really bad. My, my father in British Columbia still hasn't met my two and a half year old daughter um, because he wasn't able to come here. So things like that. I mean, these different locations across the country had different varying levels of draconian mandates. And just to, to hear these stories, we're all sharing this experience together and we've all been duped. We all have questions and, and, and getting that together and hearing these people and acknowledging that they have harms is how we heal. And that division that has been sort of perpetrated on us by the mainstream media and the government, that there's us versus them. No, 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 no. It's just us, right? And so I think that this inquiry and, that, and getting to the point, why did I do this? Number one, because I had a story to tell. Um, 
both as an expert witness and a, and a personal story to tell. But two, because I believe that a movement like this is how we become united. Very well said. Um, so one of the things that comes to mind is, so everyone had to be, was forced essentially to take this vaccine. Um, some people were able to avoid it um, in special positions. Um, maybe they're living with their family or didn't have too many bills to pay and they could avoid the vaccine mandates. But now we see um, with that Pfizer executive essentially saying that they didn't test for transmission and that sort of nullifies the whole protect the grandma type of thing. Um, that's insane for one thing. Yes. So that was a major reason why a lot of people took it in the first place. But anyhow, now going to your story um, at NCI, so maybe give our listeners, although I would encourage them to go watch it themselves, um, sort of the spark notes of what you talked about. Okay. Um, break it down. Uh, like what problems did you see with the COVID vaccine? Um, and then we'll move into after your testimony, we'll move into uh, the recent relevation that uh, there's contaminations in the Pfizer vaccine. So I'll let you take it away. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so I, I'll just kind of chronologically go through um, the discovery here of, of what I was seeing and, and really the initial, um, the initial uh, operation work speed that, that really drove the development of, of a novel experimental product. And I know people will argue like, oh, it's been in development for 25 or 10 or 15 years or whatever. mRNA as a delivery mechanism, absolutely has been in development since the eighties um, in a Petri dish in a lab. You know, there were no clinical trials with humans. There was no safety done on humans. And, and then you're adding the lipid nanoparticle sort of delivery vector situation to that. That's all novel. So this, you know, you can argue semantics, but let's call a spade a spade. This is an experimental gene therapy drug that was never given rigorous safety um, testing that should be five to 10 to 15 years to develop those RCTs, uh, to develop the, the proper reproductive uh, genotoxicity um, studies, you know, protein kinetics, all of those things were never done. It was rushed to market and simultaneously, so this is what I'm observing. So it's being rushed to market. It's this odd technology. There's no data on safety. Um, and, and simultaneous with that was the, was the um, sort of demonization of repurposing drugs that we've had in our back pocket for like 50, 60 years, one of them being like the safest drug you can take, ivermectin. Um, and with, you know, crazy safety profiles, even children can take it. And they're showing that it, it, it inhibits viral replication upon early treatment. So, you know, why were they demonizing anybody who would try and treat their patients to prevent them from dying? Those doctors were losing their licenses. Those doctors were being smeared, canceled, like Dr. Nagase from, from British Columbia, you know, Dr. McCullough, the list is very long, but the people who were trying to treat their patients were being silenced. And then no, 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 don't take ivermectin, it's horse paste. And then in the, over here, the only way to get through this is this vaccine. Well, the EUA was only allowable because there was no early treatment from the doctors that were treating the viruses. So it was all connected. It was duplicitous from the beginning. Um, and I took a, a huge offense to that. Then there was the six month uh, post 
clinical trial adverse reporting paper that was published that showed actually there's like a background mortality rate of almost 3% because 1,223 people of the 42,000 or whatever died. So there's that. And then there's all these issues we're bringing up and they weren't even talking about it. And if you talked about it, you were kicked off Twitter <laughs> or kicked off Facebook or called a crazy person or whatever, there was no discussion. So all of those things, you know, you're going through your early education in science. What are you taught? Number one, question, always question, never stop questioning, except you weren't allowed to. Um, and that was really, uh, that's what sealed the deal for me among other things with, with respect to the, the inoculations. Um, I, I, you know, with my family, uh, nobody that I know who, who will listen to me has taken it. Um, and they thank me every day. Uh, not because Laura Braden is the key authority on COVID vaccines. No, because I brought the piece that they were being lied to about to their face and said, listen, do you want to take it now? Look at these data. You're actually not allowed to see that data because it was court ordered out of 75 years of being hidden away in the closet by Pfizer. But here's some data you should look at. Do you still want to take it? And people were able to use their discernment because people want to do what's best for them and their children. They're not going to feed something or inject something into their child's arm if there's no data to support its need. Um, and so really the, the whole vaccine inoculation debacle, I'll call it, um, was a, it was a clear cut case for me from the very beginning. I totally agree. I was, um, when I was first looking at it all too, I thought it was very interesting from a science background too. They're always like, I remember sitting in one of my first or second science classes in university and they're like, oh, we're going to teach you how to critically think. And I was like, oh, this will be so great. Like what a great skill to learn one day. And then I remember sitting later on like third, fourth year courses when the pandemic started and we're all like, oh, we're going to go online. And I was like, where is the critical thinking to all of this? I was asking questions to my professors and they would not have answers. And I was like, how, like I remember this one, just like a little tangent, but this one professor was talking about how we totally understand what the COVID vaccines are doing. And he put up this slide and he, it was like the most ABC thing I've ever seen. It was like, you get injected, your body produces antibodies, you have protection to COVID. And I was like, this is what we're teaching at a 4,000 level court. You know what I mean? Like I was like, it's just, there's no science here. Like yeah. this is a, a pamphlet. Like I just I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. So awesome. Yeah. And your speech did all oh, fantastic. If for those listening, if you haven't heard it, you need to go listen to it. You did such a fantastic job breaking stuff down and showing the data and all that. Uh, was there a piece of information uh in your data that you thought was like just like so jarring, something that really stood out to you? And then it might be hard to pick one or two things, but just to kind of sum it up a little bit, was there something that really just like stood out to you? Like everyone needs to hear this. Yeah, and I mean, it gets to what Brandon has ta was talking about with respect to the, the contamination. So I don't know, like, do you want me to just hammer that right now? Or <laughs> we could talk about that, but sure. yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, okay. So um, um, in my uh, role as a senior, senior scientist and program lead at the bio biotech firm that I worked for, um, I gained a lot of experience in, in good laboratory practices, um, which is GLP. Um, it was an FDA regulated environment, Health Canada regulated environment, and uh, got a fairly good insight into quality assurance, manufacturing processes, what it takes to have good quality control, what the processes are for SOPs, all those things. And at the time, I remember hating it, right? Like as you come out of your PhD, you're like, just give me the lab book and I'm good. But this was I'm now the silver lining was it gave me incredible insight um, into what it will take. Uh, what it takes to be regulated properly. 
And so, so given that sort of insight, as I'm observing, uh, I remember in, in, when it first started coming out with the inoculations, I said to my husband, I said, I have no idea how in the world they are possibly controlling for contamination. I said that months and months ago, years ago, actually, like, this is a big issue. Like, how are they controlling all these things? Because I knew like the working pieces, I knew it was in vitro transcription. I knew it was massive reproduction of these mRNAs and then the injections and all the things. So, um, and, and as it turns out, actually they aren't. So um, unequivocally, and, and this is, this says a lot because there's a lot of harm. There's a lot of duplicity that I've talked about, uh, deceit by the pharma or the sponsors, deceit by our health regulatory officers, all the things, you know, the RRR versus they are like, how is this protecting you? You know, they inflated that to make it look amazing when actually it didn't really do anything. Um, so there's that and there's harm and there's myocarditis and the blood clots and all of that stuff is so bad. Now imagine all of that in the context of what I think is now worse. This is, this is, this is worse to me than what I've been hearing over the last two years. And that is the acknowledged um, allowance of contaminating molecules um, in, in these injections that they Pfizer and Moderna knowingly, knowingly administered to millions of people since the very beginning of vaccine rollout. And I can say that without um, hesitation that they knowingly did this because there's leaked documents of conversations between the sponsors and regulatory agencies like the European Medical Association where they were brought to their attention the major objections of the potential for contaminations and the reason that there is contaminations, the RNA integrity, all these things that was brought to their attention. That was a concern. And Pfizer said, well, we'll do better, but yeah. Okay. Thank you. And they got the right, you know, all right, well, you'll just have to come up with some post-marketing, you know, reports and you'll be fine. They knew there was a problem and they did it anyways. This is not just something that they oopsie had an oopsie moment on, you know, you don't just produce something like this. Um, and then, and then, provide sort of misleading statements that it's completely safe and all that's in there is mRNA when you know that that's not the truth. So what do I mean by that? So, you know, it's unfortunate that the onus has fallen on the citizen scientist, like the group producing the data that I'm about to speak at, uh, about, uh, Dr. Kevin McKiernan and his team and, um, and now multiple authors from multiple places. This is being confirmed over space and time with multiple methodologies converging on the same conclusion. And that is that there's massive contamination of, of, doubles of DNA uh, in the injections that should not be there. Um, and all the, all the risks associated with DNA in the injections. Um, and the fact is, is that it was there in the monovalent vaccines. It's there in the bivalent vaccines. Um, in the monovalence, it was there at 100% prevalence and he had eight different bottles, the same lot, every single bottle um, of vaccine showed this. Um, and actually he's developed a QPCR assay um, using really rapid boil me uh, prep method. Um, and citizen scientists all over Canada should just be doing this. Get, you know what, if you know anybody who can get you a sample, this is a 10 minute prep, uh, very minimal dollars. If you have access to a QPCR machine, go do this. Let's show over and over and over again how pervasive this is, because what does this mean? This means that the quality control of these, of the process manufacturing of these injections was a complete and abject failure. There is presence of plasmid in there. 
there's presence of antibiotic resistant genes in there. In circular plasmid, they confers antibiotic resistance to E. coli when they are transformed. And what does that mean? That means that you are being injected, maybe, maybe not, it's inconsistent, with plasmids, circular pieces of replication competent DNA that transfer antibiotic resistance to bacteria. Okay. So and that is just in there. You didn't sign that away. Oh, I mean, you weren't given informed consent, you know, at all, but like, so I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> you didn't know that was in there. You didn't know you were getting these genes. You didn't know that the DNA actually, um, high levels of double-stranded, uh, nucleic acid can just integrate into the genome by itself. It doesn't require enzymes like, like transposases, like line one, there's all these issues and they knew it and they just let it happen. And uh, it's there in the monovalence, there in the bivalence, and, uh, and it's there in Moderna and Pfizer. So they knew. Um, it's, it is unacceptable um, negligence. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot there. Um, so I have some research experience, and I don't really fully understand good laboratory practices. Most people would probably just assume, why wouldn't you always have good laboratory practices? Uh, a silly common word. So maybe. Um, explain that to us. Um, why or why not or not do or do not have that? Uh, second, talk a little bit about Kevin McKernan, I think his name is. To me, um, just briefly looking up him up, it sounds like he's pretty reputable. So I want people to understand how reputable he is. And this isn't just some random that did some random sequencing. And this yeah. is another quack saying, oh, there's a contamination in the vials. And then go into the specifics, um, like how many vials were tested? Uh, sure. What frequency is their contaminations? Um, are they different lots? And maybe talk about that if you, if you know that. Okay. So the first question, GLP, good laboratory practices. Um, so in commercial uh, products, in, in pharmaceuticals, and in, in anything where you want to reproduce something over and over and over again in a scientific environment. Um, it is of utmost importance that the same steps are taken the exact same time with the exact same sort of methodology. It's been vetted. It's been uh, precision and accuracy has been demonstrated. Um, you're following uh, standard operating procedures. The, the operators know they've signed off on it. Everybody's trained to the same standard. It's a level, it's, it's just to basically to ensure high level of reproducibility and high standards. Um, and this is of utmost importance with manufacturing processes. So GLP and GMP, which is good manufacturing processes kind of go hand in hand. So good laboratory practices would be in the lab, GMP, meaning when they're producing the actual injections, they would be following the same sort of idea. And it's all regulate, regulated by, um, and, and, it's, and it's kind of signed off on by the FDA, number one, is the, is the main regulatory body that oversees these types of things and are looking for that standardization, that high level of reproducibility, so that they can be assured that every time they do A, the, the result is B. So there's no, somebody doesn't sometimes put in 10 microliters and sometimes put in 15, you know what I mean? Like that's, a, that's an easy way to sort of, it's, it's the standardization of practices. Um, and it's, it's critical for uh, compliance uh, uh, to, to produce highly uh, qual high quality products. Uh, this happens when they produce Tylenol. This happens when they produce any drug for humans. This happens when they make your milk. This happens. It's just part of uh, part and parcel of the process of manufacturing products for human consumption. And 
um, it's sort of accepted that there's certain levels of standardization. So, uh, and throughout that process um, that you're being audited. So you have an internal quality assurance department in the company, Pfizer would have their own that goes and makes sure that all these things are following, all going follow to order and all the stuff. And then when they get audited by the regulatory authorities, like the FDA, for example, the FDA would go through the audits. If they find discrepancies or deviations, they would note them. It's really just to keep the standards up, right? Because that's what we expect. So in that, that being said, we expect that at every step along the process of manufacture for these injections, when Pfizer is saying themselves that they're testing for high quality, no contamination, there's no presence of plasmid, don't worry guys, we got it. We expect that that to be the truth and that to be the case. That's false advertising because um, time and time again, they're showing that that's not true, right? So if that's the case and there was a breakdown of that standard, that would imply they are out of compliance, number one, and that there is a lack, uh, an abysmal lack of quality control by the sponsor, Pfizer, um, and which is concerning. And so, so we've never been able to get our hands on we, the people of the world, have never been able to get our hands on the sequencing of these injections. So there's no data. They tell you this, there's this, this, and this in it on the insert, right? They don't, they never say, well, this is the sequence of the plot of the, of the insert. Um, and we show it because here it is. Here's the, here's the demonstration that what we're saying is in the vials is in the vials. It's never been done. So uh, Kevin McKernan is a um, highly uh, competent bioinformatician, uh, transcriptomics. He's a, he's a, he's a genomics guru um, has, I think he's patented and like um, invented several um, uh, sequencing methodologies. I believe he was part of the human genome project, sort of. I, I can't say his exact CV. Um, I would just go to his, you know, LinkedIn and go to his profile. He's got it all there. He's, he's sequencing a number of different things at the moment. He's got a massive lab. He's an MIT grad. Like he's legit. Um, and, and here's how he's even more legit. He's saying, here's some stuff that I found, world, please, and analyze it. Here's the code. Do it yourself. Reproduce it. Is anybody finding anything else? This is so concerning to me. I'm Kevin. I really want to make sure that I'm right before we really blow the lid off this thing. That's called science. That's what scientists do. So he's legit in that way as well. And bring in all the information in and everybody have a conversation. He's not owning anything. He doesn't care. He's saying, finally, we have evidence of contamination world. Let's go. And so he published all the primer sets for this QPCR assay I was telling you about. You guys, this is what you need. Just take it and go. Like, he, you know, he's worried because um, after you see something like this, which he's found, which is the, the contamination in the injections, he has every right to be worried. And everybody else who's concerned should be worried because that's, that is a, a potential explanation for the adverse reactions that we're seeing um, in some people. Uh, and there's a mechanism there, perhaps. So uh, what did he find? Um, basically, he sequenced, he took some vials of Moderna and Pfizer that were supplied to him, uh, I believe two from each, and the two are from the same lot. God, you'll have to go, it's, it's in his Substack. I'm pretty sure they're the same lot. Um, and took samples out and used um, next generation RNA sequencing to sequence the contents just to see what's in there. And he found evidence of plasma contamination. Um, 
double-stranded plasmid being the vector that was used to amplify the original spike uh, nucleic acid fragment. Okay, so I'll, I'll just maybe I can't I shouldn't assume everybody's on the same page. So what is a plasmid? A plasmid is a circular piece of self-replicating DNA that is nature is ubiquitous in nature. So it's found in plasmid uh, bacteria. It's found in archaea um, and other organisms. Sometimes it's just in the environment. <laughs> very cool. Anyways, but we can use it in, in biology because uh, plasmids and bacteria love each other. So you can get E. coli to take the plasmids up and the, the E. coli will express whatever the plasmid is containing. So if you want, and it's, it's an amazing tool for molecular biology, recombinant technology. If you want the bacteria, you want a protein of interest and you want a lot of it or a DNA of interest, you clone your bacteria, you take your bacteria, you got your plasmid with insert in there that you've stuck in there and you put it together and you grow it, you ferment it in batches, massive batches. And you get like billions and trillions of copies of that one plasmid. And then you just take the plasmid out, you cut it because we know where to cut with these molecular scissors. It's more complicated than that, obviously, but, and then you get your purified product. It's magic. It's awesome. And that is the technology that Pfizer used to replicate its plasmid containing spike DNA. So what Kevin found was that plasmid in the injections, in a lot. So there's, I should say, I should say that, and this is sort of funny too, how regulatory agencies are like, well, there's an acceptable background. How did you determine that? Did you do something to show that that little acceptable, acceptable background isn't going to hurt someone? No, you just said arbitrarily, you know, one in a thousand or one in 3000, I believe one molecule of DNA and 3000 molecules of mRNA is cool. Okay. All right, then he found thousands fold higher than that, like unacceptable levels, way off the charts levels. And not only that, but he didn't see just contamination of the plasmid chunkies or, you know, the, the, the cut plasmid, he found circular plasmid. So he found that using bioinformatics. And, you know, after you're seeing sequencing data, there's a lot of issues with with the, with the mRNA and Pfizer because there's uh, pseudouridines on there and there's a couple other things. So it, it kind of confound, it, it adds this sort of noise when you're, when you're looking at sequencing data. So he's like, huh, I should do this again. So what did he do? He took the vial after he used RNA-seq and then digested all the RNA. So anything that would be left would be DNA. And then he sequenced that and he found a bunch of, he found the same thing. And then, oh my gosh, well, what I'm seeing here is evidence of circular DNA gee, I hope they can't replicate. All right. Well, he took some out and he transformed, he took whatever it was there. He didn't know it was there because he can't see anything. And he just transformed E. coli. And then he plated the E. coli on plates of agar that contained antibiotic and got E. coli growing. What that meant was that there was replication competent e plasmid in the injection that contained antibiotic resistant genes. And those are being injected into people. Like, it's insane. It's so bad. So um, to get to your point, Cassie, that to me is, is, the, is the biggest. It, it was sort of happening in real time. It started in February where he started doing this and it's still going on right now. He's getting more and more data, they're accumulating it. Um, and it's kind of happening in real time. And it is by far to me the most shocking piece of it because it's so, you can't, it's incontrovertible. You know, when you talk about this war that we're in with the information, right? Like people mass work 
I've got all this data over here. And then masks don't work because of all this data. We can argue and people can go find pieces of evidence to support whatever they want. And that's the problem with peer review because that's sort of been enabling this whole situation. And the fact that people think that peer review is somehow gospel and if it's peer reviewed, well, you can't even argue. Well, that's not the point. The point is this, you can't argue. This is, the, this is incontrovertible evidence of failure of pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies to ensure their products are safe uh, for humans. And you can't go and find a paper to say that it's not there because it's there. Yeah, that's really scary. It's very concerning too to think that that this is something that other people are having to find, like you said, like, like citizen scientists are having to find this out for people to now know. Um, what do you hope that, uh, I guess, the scientific community or medical professionals, or what do you hope that this data does uh, for those? Because I think the jarring information is like, okay, this is crazy, this is happening. We obviously need to look into it more. Do you have any, like, um, I guess, a positive outlook on what you hope for this information to do? Something that people who may be a little concerned with this? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the hope is that this is how the uh, injections are stopped. It should be, they should have been, they should have been taken off the market at over 50 deaths. There's evidence of, of thousands and thousands of people and, and we're gonna see one. Um, not gonna cry, not gonna cry. Dan Hartman's child being one of them. He will be testifying in about an hour and a half at the citizen's inquiry. His 17 year old son died 33 days post-vaccine. So <clears throat> we've seen evidence of death. Children, people, 50 is what it's supposed to take. Even that is too many. We're in the thousands, thousands of people in the US that, that, they've, that they've, and you know, in Canada and across the world. This needs to be taken off the market. It should have been a while ago. There is criminality here because there's negligence of authorities. And that is called malfeasance by our regulatory authorities. Now, this kind of evidence that, is, that has been presented as potential contamination, Kevin um, has this, you know, he's released the methods. Everybody who has a qPCR, this is like as common as a bank machine, okay? You can go and test these yourself. Imagine if citizen scientists all over this country did that. And we can't, you, you, it would be deafening. You wouldn't be able to avoid it any longer. We need to take these injections off and stop the shots. Like I can't even express that enough. Um, here in PEI, and even, it's so, it's so interesting to me because NACI, which is the National Advisory Council of Immunizations in Canada, um, they, they, without telling anybody, changed their guidelines. And provinces are supposed to sort of follow the guidelines of NACI. Now, recently, uh, NACI, I, I assume it's because I can only speculate, but it's probably because they're feeling some pressure on the global stage, has changed their guidelines that boosters only be available to uh, those over 65 or who are immunocompromised. So they're sort of taking it away from the kids now and the WHO doing the same thing. There is a vaccine push here in PEI to vaccinate everybody even if you're two, doesn't matter, get it. You gotta get it, you gotta protect grandma. The, the, like, are we living in the freaking dark ages here? Like the data's out people. This doesn't, like, as you said, Brandon, it doesn't prevent transmission. That was a lie. They said it would, it was a lie. So everybody did it and then they, they got lied to. <laughs> and now they're still pushing it. Um, 
yeah. So, so getting back to your point, the stop, the shots have to stop. And I hope that that is an outcome of this. If it isn't, I, I can't imagine what would it, what it will take to be honest from, from my perspective that the glaring sort of negligence by sponsors in this case is all, you know, if it get, it just, it just needs to get out there. And actually um, Dr. Malone talked about this in his testimony as well. He, he acknowledged that this was one of the big issues that they're seeing now. So it's spreading throughout. I mean, you can't ignore it um, while the mainstream can, but, but maybe that's how we get it out, you know? And, and one of the things that was really good is that Nova Scotia mainstream Nova Scotia radio station, um, actually interviewed one of the experts from the NCI from Toro, Dr. Aries Lavandros, who is an ER doc, uh, excellent doctor. And, and he said some things in there that it sort of was like, this is exactly what we need to be you know, what mainstream needs to be sharing. It was amazing. So, so good for people like, like, uh, what's his name? Todd Vigneault, um, from the radio station. And I, I, I went on Twitter and I congratulated him for, for being brave and telling the other side and allowing our voice to be heard because I bet you that 99 and a half percent of Canadians, I don't say a hundred percent, cause there's always going to be those people who do, it doesn't matter. 99 and a half percent of Canadians, if they knew the truth, it would give them at least pause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to back up a little bit. So we talked about this contamination. Um, my understanding is recently this was found both in the bivalence and um, the initial one and two injections that uh, like 80% yes. of Canada took. Um, so essentially the best thing that could come of this is like you said, a call for other research scientists to obtain these vaccines or injections, whatever you want to call them and just start doing PCR or mass spec to find out what's exactly in them. My understanding is that you can't get these vaccines to analyze them because it's proprietary or something along that line. So you basically need to be sneaky to get these vaccines and analyze them is, is Absolutely. your understanding? That is mine as well. Yeah, 100%. And there's a reason. <laughs> okay, I get it. You guys didn't want us to find out what was in there or how bad the quality control was. You know, and that's a good point, Brandon, because yes, it was found in the monovalence recently. So they found that again in every 100%. So they had eight vials and all eight contained this from like uh, the numbers up to 80 times the acceptable limit. And that was just using qPCR. So they didn't go in and sequence everything because the other thing is, and this is a real good one. <laughs> I mean, no, it's not, but. <sighs> The, the plasmids or the vectors um, that contain the in initial insert. So how plasmids work is that we can construct them in, to contain, well, we put in antibiotic resistance genes and we put in our DNA of interest. And then there's a promoter. And the promoter that are used in this, that is used in this case is called the SV, the simian virus 40 promoter. And it's a, it's a replication. It's a, it's a promoter that um, is from a virus that infects both bacteria and mammalian cells. So it's competent in both. Okay. So this promoter is in there. Um, and the other thing that they, that they know is that this promoter is very, it's a, I mean, it's a great tool essentially for turboing the, it like, it, it inspires a lot of production of whatever is in the plasmid. That's the easiest way, you know, so it just drives production of that plasmid. Well, there's an interesting 72 base pair insert, and I can give you the, the paper for that, but it's, uh, 
uh, what's in my presentation. So um, I'll, I'll actually give you a copy of my presentation that has been cut out of the testimonies. It's all in there. People want to go and see this paper. But basically, this 72 base pair insert like supercharges the plasmid. So like there, and it's also known to be associated with cancer progression. It's an oncogene because it's like sort of spinning out of control production of whatever it's attached to. The promoter makes the DNA polymerase go and promote and promote and promote and promote. Okay. That's the way to explain it. And so that insert was found in some of the plasmids, not all of them. So sometimes you get the promoter, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get a sequence of the plasmid that contains neomycin, sometimes you don't. Like it's not consistent. So within the vials, even he was showing like this sort of um, inconsistent contamination that, so what's the problem here? You know, people could say, oh yeah, the plasmid, what does that mean? Well, is it going, is it being transferred to bacteria in our GI tract and transferring bacteria? We, we don't know. Is it containing something that will impact our cells? It's being released with the lipid nanoparticle. Are our cells taking up plasmids now? We, we don't know. There's all this potential for harm and you can speculate all day long what it's going to do. The fact is, is that we don't know. And the fact is, is that pharma didn't do the necessary studies and checks and balances to make sure that that wouldn't be an issue. And if it was, what are the potential impacts? That's called ethical research, right? And that wasn't done. So here we are left to all these assumptions and speculations. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to fear monger. That's not my intention here. Um, it's to bring light to these and, and, and get the conversation going because now we have to figure it out on our own, obviously. They won't do it for us. And if there's issues there, they need to be stopped immediately. Let's find out what the issues are. That's, of course, assuming that they are necessary to begin with and we know that they're not, right? So we don't need the injections because they don't do anything for us. And in fact, they just harm people. Like the data is very clear. Um, maybe for, for 85 year old vulnerable nannies, um, it gave them uh, an increased resistance to the virus. But you know what? If they were treated with high levels of all these other vitamins and whatnot, and they were kept away and they were sequestered, like quarantine is supposed to do for vulnerable people in a pandemic, it would be a moot point. Like the vaccine is, is negligible. It's a moot point for me as far as I'm concerned. Like it, it wasn't needed to begin with. And now it's especially not needed because it's killing people. And it's the most toxic. Doctors will say this, this is not from me. I'm quoting here the most toxic intervention ever seen by humans is happening right now. I get mad, but I mean, come on. <laughs> No, the fear or the fear, the anger is definitely needed. Like it has come to a point where if people don't start getting angry and not destructive, but just angry about this and pushing for answers, like nothing will come to light. It, it really won't. Nothing will change and we'll end up in a position that doesn't put us any farther ahead, especially like one thing I'm noticing too. I know quite a few people with vaccine injuries and by not talking about anything, it is, it's horrible, but by not talking about it and at least acknowledging that things were wrong and not done correctly, we can't help them. Like the help doesn't start, especially because I found that there's a lot of uh, censorship and silencing with medical, uh, like with doctors and their opinions and what they can advise. And if we don't start reaching out and acknowledging this information, how are we supposed to help those uh, who have uh, vaccine injuries and are, and are hurt from all this, which is horrible, but it, it's true. Um, just a kind of a tangent a little bit, I just out of curiosity, uh, I know in your interview, you talked a little bit about the PCR and the PCR testing. So for myself, one thing I found interesting at the beginning of all this is I was trying to find the sequence that they were using for the testing, because I know 
Um, hopefully this doesn't get us uh, silenced or anything, but there are some <laughs> snippets of people saying that PCR cannot be used as a testing mechanism. Mechanism You can't use it to, to prove that someone has disease. So where did the sequence or how, or I don't even know the right wording would be, like in order to do PCR, you kind of need to know a primer in order to even use it. So the idea is like, what is the sequence that they're even looking for? Is PCR a good use of tests? If you could talk a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from my knowledge, the, there's there might be more than one assay, but I know that a lot of the PCR um, tests that were used were based on the initial sequencing, and it's found in the Dorsten et al. paper, um, and they were published in 2020. Yeah, so um, and that was the initial. There was like a Wuhan isolate isolate. Okay, I think that's where they got it from. Please double check me. I don't want to mislead you, but I believe that's where it's coming from. And it's not just one primer set. It's, I think there's three. Um, if in this particular assay that I'm thinking, but one of them is shared by many different coronaviruses. So it's not really specific to uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the other two uh, are parts of that might be specific to SARS-CoV-2. Um, but here's the thing, it, like, sure, we have primers and they're based on sequence them and we're fairly confident that the sequence is correct. Um, it doesn't matter because you, you're right, Cassie. You, you, PCR detects nucleic acid. It does not detect disease, and um, and a huge proportion of the tests that proved there was cases in Canada were of really healthy people that didn't have symptoms, and they were cycling the assay, so they they ran it way beyond what would be normally acceptable in science. Like I remember hearing that they were using a cycle threshold cutoff of I think it was even forty. And there's a, a colleague that I have back in BC and I, I'm going to keep his, he's an anonymous um, for good reason. Anyways, I sent him a message. I said, are you seeing this? Like, am I the only one that thinks this is just almost hilarious? Like it's a satire, right? Like this isn't real because you couldn't publish that. Like if I, as a reviewer, and by the way, I was on like several review boards for different papers. I reviewed, I wrote papers all the time. I know how it takes. If I saw that, I would like send it back. I wouldn't even like, as a good reviewer, that's not... That's, that's garbage because you can make anything out of anything at 45 cycles, right? Um, and even if, and that's looking at gene expression. So if you're trying to show that that is indicative of a virus present, um, you could have like half a copy of a genome that, that was sequestered in a T cell stuck in your nasal passages and they just happened to get it and they amplified the crap out of that. Of course, you're going to come out positive. You were infected maybe nine months ago. Like it's ridiculous. So what is that? What, what would be the proper way to do it? A person presents symptoms, you take a sample, it becomes positive for PCR. Okay, let's confirm. You take that sample and then you put it through something called a viral assay, a replication assay, viral plaque assay, to show that there's an actual infective variant present. Okay, positive case. How many times did they do that in Canada? I don't think any. As far as, far as I've, I've seen lots of FOIA requests and I haven't seen single case where they used viral replication assays to confirm disease. They just got a positive test on a PCR, sometimes 45 cycles. Like in Newfoundland, it was 45. In PEI, it was 40. Um, I think in Ontario, I don't know what it was in Manitoba. Nobody can find any, any data on Manitoba. It's like you guys, all the data is hidden in the repository of like the truth, ministry of truth somewhere. Anyways, um, 
yeah, it, it's, it's, it challenges the, like oh, laughing aside, it is an unacceptable use of a diagnostic assay that is only meant to determine if there's a presence of something that you then confirm with a confirmatory test like a viral assay. You never show uh, disease with a PCR test. And that's the end of it. That should never have gone on that way. Um, but what it did was created this massive influx of positive cases because half the people in Canada probably saw COVID in 2019. We were all positive because we were positive from coronaviruses like before then. You know, like this is my speculation, but I call this a case demic. Many have. This was a case demic. Look at all the people who are positive. They're not actually sick. We're going to shut down society. We're going to mandate masks. We're going to lock down schools. There's going to be a massive increase in suicidality in children. People are going to die alone. You know, it, let's do that. That makes sense. Great job, government. Yeah, it's crazy. And I was also thinking too, at the beginning, like um, there was maybe one study, I wish I could quote the paper, I don't remember anymore, it was years ago when that first started, that people were showing that uh, those who had SARS, uh, I think it's SARS-1 or, or something like that, there was an outbreak in Toronto that they actually had immunity to to COVID when it came out. And I was like, why are we not like looking at this information too? Like, why are we not looking at all this data? And why is nobody talking about this? Like, we're acting as if nobody has natural immunity. We're acting as if there's nothing else that can help people. It's just so like, it was bizarre. Uh, really quick on the PCR too, back to, I know it's just so like, it's, it's, it's not funny, but it is a little bit, it's like, you have to kind of find some humor in it. Um, but after vaccinated, could the PCR test have also picked up vaccine parts and then caused false positives that way? Um, or no, it's just out of curiosity, just thinking about that. Cause it's like, once all that started breaking out, they were still counting cases and, and all of that. So I don't think so because the spike protein, uh, wouldn't have been the, like, I think there was, conf you needed three pieces of the virus. And I think spike was only one of them. So okay. I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. But I mean, that's what, okay, number one, just to comment on the SARS-CoV-1, isn't it interesting that there was this massive sort of paper published, and I think Anthony Fauci was on there talking about how amazing it was that we had a treatment for SARS-CoV-1. It was called um, hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> but I don't know. There's, we, we have nothing to treat SARS-CoV-2. Don't worry about it. But yeah, the, I mean, the, the existence, the pre-existence of natural immunity, and not only that, um, antibodies maybe, but really our innate immunity is what kicks the crap out of this virus, right? Like that's why kids are so awesome at, at you know, really resisting any of the impacts of, of respiratory viruses for a large part, because they have an, like they have an amazing T cell repertoire. They have an amazing natural immunity that's present in, in the innate immune system. And so there was no even rep, like, I remember Dr. Uh, Kavender Carr. Now she, uh, she's been taken down off Twitter several times, I think. Um, She's a doctor out of Ontario and she was speaking some hard truths and she and others were talking about T-cell immunity, it, which is innate. It's not learned, you know, it's just sort of there all the time. Like 90% of people, 90% of the population would have had cross-reactive T-cells to COVID. We were already immune. And, and yeah, maybe you got some symptoms and you got, you know, like, I don't want to downplay the fact that people did get sick. There were lots of people that got sick from things, just like people have got sick from things since like the dawn of time, this is not new. We're not special in COVID, right? Like influenza B was going around here in PEI and it made people sick. People get sick. Um, we're not shutting down the economy for that though. Um, not a special enough virus, I suppose. But, <laughs> you know, this natural immunity thing was, was just largely overlooked. I remember thinking, who was it? Patty Heyju, the first year of the, of the COVID crisis, Patty Heyju, which was the Minister of Health, I believe at the time, 
and she was laughing at people talking about vitamin D and she called it fake news. I'm like, okay. So she just went ahead, right. She's not even a medical doctor or any kind of doctor at all. She's like got economics or something. She just went and rewrote all of the immunology texts. I guess we should go change them because vitamin D isn't important anymore. Like, you know, it's just, yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but um, just putting on my vaccine injury denier hat right now. So yep. some of the things that people would say would, would be, um, it was such a big risk. We didn't have time to do like viral plaque assays, like you said. So we had to rely on PCR. Um, and second thing, well, we had to generate this vaccine again, because it was such a big risk in a short period of time. Um, we couldn't control for all of these um, like good laboratory practices. Like there was going to be some, some errors in this process because it was so fast. Um, yeah. So speak to that. I, I know my own opinions on that, but yeah. what are your thoughts? Well, all of what you just said may have been true if the infection fatality rate was 20%, right? There was never a risk. The infection fatality rate, uh, so I should mention the risk stratification for this disease was very evident from the beginning that this was only really a disease of the elderly and immunocompromised, just like the flu is. Um, except the difference is, is that the flu impacts children and this one didn't. So we were actually in a better position. So kids, okay, we're good. We don't have to worry about them. They can just be their own little germ factories at daycare like they have always been. We're not gonna worry about them. We're gonna maybe be, pay more attention and use a risk stratification approach, which should have been done, which is what exactly the thousands and thousands and thousands of doctors that signed the Great Barrington Declaration suggested for the world governments to maybe use a, a stratification approach. Let's use our brains you know, that organ between our ears to come up with a better approach than just locking down the society. Um, and because of that, um, the fact is, is that there was only a risk to the very, very old. If you're 65, 70 and young, let's just say for argument's sake, 60 and younger, your chances of dying from COVID are basically like they're, and, and if you're not obese and you don't have three or four other comorbidities, you're gonna be okay. They showed that at the beginning. We knew that data. Maybe at the maybe like during the propaganda fear porn phase, when like Chinese, you know, we we're seeing these people just kind of drop like flies. Oh, that could have been maybe bad. Let's just take a step back. But then the data started coming out, and it didn't jive. It wasn't congruent. What we were being told and what we were seeing, the numbers on Stats Canada, Health Canada, we were not seeing people die. The IFR was very low. So because of that, there always needs to be, Brandon, there is always a cost-benefit analysis, except for in this case. The costs of a unsafe, unproven drug that, has, that is not necessary because the IFR is so low versus let's treat the virus with already repurposed drugs that we know is in our arsenal that people were showing great results with. But instead of showing the data coming out of Zelenko or McCullough or Corey or Nagasi treating ivermectin or Dr. Phillips treating his patient and like completely survived, like recovered and did, you know, thrived after that, instead of showing that, they silenced the debate. And I'm wondering, as a speculation only, if that had anything to do with the 10 million doses the Canadian government purchased for all of us, 10 billion doses. You know, maybe they needed to get rid of them. I'm not sure that's speculation, <laughs> but it's hard to use any logic and come up with a different conclusion because they abandoned the precautionary principle, which is the fundamental tenet of medicine. 
they began abandoned that from day one. So yes, um, in an example of a some kind of hemorrhagic fever that was killing people by the millions every day. Yeah, sure, let's rush this through because we need it because we don't have any drugs. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. We had drugs, the IFR was low, and it was highly risk stratified approach would have worked. Yeah, it is interesting because yeah, like we should have been looking at other methods the entire time about how to treat people and, and whatnot. Um, I don't know if we have any more questions. Brendan, do you have anything? Yeah, just a comment. Um, I think that John Ioannidis' paper showed in 2020 that the infection fatality rate under 60 was less than 0.1% before even the vaccines came around. So like one in a thousand and not even age stratified for like university age students like us, healthy people. Um, and that's that doesn't even consider the whole whiff from COVID thing. Um, oh, I would just tell people to go read that and, and take a look back in hindsight about what was actually going on in 2020. And then we implemented exactly. all these crazy measures, but yeah. So Cassie, you don't have any other further comments? No, you've answered all of my questions that I've had lingering. <laughs> you did such a good job. I think honestly, for anybody listening, you need to go listen to the whole presentation to see everything. You did such like such a phenomenal job breaking down the science and showing people from like the beginning everything that was kind of told to them. It was you did a phenomenal job. Thank you, Cassie. I appreciate that. Thank so you. what we normally do at the end is we ask um, our guests to give some insight for students. So um, they could be future uh, medical professionals or future scientists like yourself or whatever they may be. Um, they are, may have been kicked out of school or forced to take the vaccines or whatever. And so they may have lost trust in the integrity of these universities, may not even see the value of these degrees coming from them because of like what you said, just the absurdity in their response and the information, failure to cite things. And so just don't really even trust or wanna be a part of these universities. So what is your advice going forward? Should for students just take a step back or, or what do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think I went to school for like 17 years. <laughs> I was like, I was hardcore, okay? I did one degree and then I was like, I can't get enough. I did another one. And then, you know, I, I used to live um, and, and was so proud of, of, of the academic institution and the environment um, because for a lot of my experience, it was about higher learning. Um, and I, I, I valued that environment. Um, the, the sort of progression, the downhill progression of that in the last few years has been really hard to see. Um, disappointing, sad. I couldn't imagine my, me uh, in this environment right now. I, I don't know how you guys are doing it. Um, well, it, actually I do. You have principles and ethics and, and discernment. And, and I mean, for people who, who I just, what would I say to my children? I mean, thank God they're only five and three. That's all I got to say. Um, it is, there's nothing wrong with, I mean, like you guys did, you waited, you, you put it on hold, you know, you're young and you feel like there's this push to get out there and start making money and finish your life. And you got, you know, you got to go, 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 go. It's the career. And it's the accomplishments that are associated with that and get the grant and get the NSERC and get the, you know, I, I was all about that. And, and maybe you can, 
um, go and find an institution that will support you. Um, and, and I'm hoping that over the next few years, the institutions that have, for all intents and purposes, like Western, I went to Western for one year and then left because I need to go back to BC, but I couldn't imagine being forced to vaccinate, to stay in school. That is being shown over and over again to be unconstitutional. And the policies that are driving that are largely political. And it is my sincere hope that people like Dr. Byron Bridal and, and the people and the other professors, um, you know, Julie Panessa and all the people who spoke out, they represent the goodness of open institutions. They, they represent the light that is higher learning. There are so many good professors and so many good people left that have, for all intents and purposes, um, been shut up or, or couldn't because they couldn't afford to lose their livelihood. But there's people there that are going to maintain that structure once the political incentivized BS is removed. So I, I would say, you know, research an institution that you want to go to. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe find a group like you. Like find, you know, you guys are representing sort of a parallel system that's emerging, isn't it? Like you have, we have parallel medical systems emerging. We have parallel uh, economies emerging. Why wouldn't that make sense for institutions like academ academia? And I believe there's already a few of those starting. So that network, find the community of people who support you um, is the number one thing. Like we're doing that across Canada in terms of finding our community, um, you know, for food production and for ed education and homeschooling initiatives for other reasons that we don't have time to discuss here, but I would be glad to come back to talk about. Um, but it's finding the community that supports you and that you'll go to, to proverbial war with when things like this happen. Like, look at the look at the support that you give to, to students across Canada. Like that, 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 is, that is how we get through it, is people like yourselves representing um, uh, the sort of face of bravery and truth and courage against these draconian situations that I don't think we're done seeing yet, but it's an already pre-existing sort of infrastructure for people to land on. I mean, it's hard to think, would I go back? So like, I did lose my career over this. Like I, I completely lost um, my brand. You know, you get a brand for what you're doing and for your expertise, it's gone. And, um, and would I do it again in a heartbeat? No doubt. There's, there's, there's no reason why everybody shouldn't be complaining about these things if they have the education to support why they're coming up with these assertions. But, you know, would I go back? At this moment, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go back to academia. There needs to be some changes at my institution that I was at um, because they, uh, they're they currently still too much under the thumb of the government, you know, and, and the policies that are driving tri-council, for example, awards and things like that. Like, you shouldn't be getting money because you said a magic word like climate change. You should be getting a money to study things if they have merit, not if they're politically uh, appropriate. Do you know what I mean? So there's that piece that's still sort of I don't think been rectified yet, but as we grow and we go move forward and we heal with hearing these things and growing this movement of people who are spreading their truths and, and just wanting to exist as humans with our constitutions in this country and young people, I think that that's, uh, it's already off to a good start. Very well said. Maybe we can put our brains together and come up with a new way of education and learning and whatnot, like you said. So but thanks for taking the time and speaking with us today. We appreciate it. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Nice to meet you. I hope to speak to you again.